Just so, just want y'all to know. Well, I was going to say good morning, uh, Church on the Trail, but we're all discombobulated because of the time of day. Um, I don't even know that's a word. I don't know where that came from. But you know, you just have to know that that uh, yesterday, for I don't know what we were, it was probably five hours or so. There are people out there making it happen. You know, that land right now, it looks so good. And there's, you know, we're going to have a, uh, I don't know, there was probably 15, 20 people out there working hard. So Easter, Richard mentioned it, but every year there are, there are people, a bucket of people, probably a very large bucket of people all over the world that they, we say it all the time that people are giving God and his church one last chance. Y'all, that's not just, we're not just joking around when we say that. That is happening really every Sunday all over the planet. They're walking in and giving him one last chance and particularly happens on Easter because people that don't go to church, they may go one time a year and it may be, uh, it really is only on Easter that that's going to happen. And so we want, it's the Super Bowl of Christianity is on Easter. And so we want it to be first class. We want uh, people to come out there because here's what I know. They're going to hear the truth and they're going to hear the gospel. And I know that people are going to walk from that street onto that property, lost as a goose, and they're going home saved. And I know that generations are going to change because of that. And you know why that happened? Yeah, that, if anything, ought to get clapping. That ought to get clapping. But um, The reason is because everybody in this church cares enough to do it right. You know, people are out there working their tail off, and that's going to happen next Saturday too. And if you're not on a volunteer team as it is right now, Get on one sometime this week, and even if you don't get on one, come out there next Saturday, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to have about 11 or 1,200 chairs delivered Saturday, and we set all that up, and we set everything up, and we're praying over every single chair because somebody is going to sit in one of those chairs and they're going to be lost, and they're going to hear the gospel, and they're going to hear about Jesus. And they're going to leave saved. That's a big, big deal. So come out there and, and help do that. Um, Richard said that we're, uh, that we're working our way through the gospel according to Mark, and which we, which we are. And last week uh, we were in chapter 13 and we were talking about end times and the tribulation and the rapture. It was a heavy conversation. This week, because we're working up, to Resurrection Day, Resurrection Sunday next week. And y'all, this week is Passover week, you know, uh, 2,000 years ago. And so we're going to be in Chapter 14 and Chapter 15, and, and we're primarily going to be in 15. So I'm going to give you the, the hopefully 60-second on Chapter 14, and then we're going to be in, in Chapter 15. So Chapter 14... So Chapter 14, it, it is Passover week. It's It's couple of days before the Passover feast, and, and they're in Bethany, and they're uh, uh, Mary, and Mark doesn't say it's Mary, but it's Mary that, that uh, busts a, an alabaster container of ointment or perfume, and she pours it on, on uh, Jesus, and a bunch of his guys get pretty ticked about it because they, and, the, and Mark doesn't tell us that it's Judas, but it was Judas that got really mad because it was, he said it's a waste of money. That it was a year's worth of wages, that, that perfume. And Jesus said, he rebukes him and says, don't be saying that to her. He said, what she did is a beautiful thing. And immediately, you find in verse 10, 
Judas goes to the chief priest and he, and he, he starts scheming to betray uh, Jesus. And then Jesus sends his guys to go find a place <coughs> to have the Passover feast. He says, go find a place to have a, a Passover Seder. That's the, the, uh, the, the dinner meal for Passover. And they find a place, and we call that the Last Supper. And so they have the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, Jesus institutes communion. And he says, take, you know, he breaks the bread. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And he gives them wine. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. And so he does that at the Last Supper. And then he tells uh, Peter that you're going to deny me. And Peter says, no, I'm not. And Jesus said, yeah, you are. And Peter says, no, I'm not. And Jesus says, oh, yes, you are. And I'm kind of God, so I know that that's what's going to happen. And so, and so he, he didn't really say that. That was just me edifying that. But, but then they go immediately from there out to the garden to Gethsemane. And it's a dark scene. And Jesus wants to get alone with the Father and pray. And that's when he says... Lord, if, Father, if there's any way to do this some other way, because it's not going to be a good thing, he said, take this cup from me. And he tells his guys to y'all stay watch and y'all stay awake and watch, you know, and kind of hold guard while I go in here and pray uh, with my dad. And they can't even stay awake. And then immediately, you know, Mark is all about immediately. Then immediately Judas comes up with the, uh, with the guards, the Roman soldiers and the chief, uh, the chief priest and, and some of the scribes and Pharisees, and he kisses Jesus. And that's his, the signal to the guards. He says, the one that I kiss is the one that you need to arrest. And they do. And Peter, of course, man, you've got to love Peter. Peter says, it's go time. And he pulls the sword out and he chops. Uh, Malchus is the guy's name, the guard, that he chops his ear off. And, you know, it's not in Mark, but Jesus put the ear back on. You reckon that guy got saved? Somebody chopped his ear off and the dude picked it up and put it back on and it was fine. Can you imagine the look on his face? You know, he's picking his ear up off the ground and puts it back on him. And so, uh, so they do, obviously, they arrest Jesus, and, uh, and Peter follows him. And then Peter ends up clearly denying uh, Christ three times before the rooster crows twice. And, you know, in that interrogation of Jesus, let me tell you what one of the questions was. It's in verse 61. Uh, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And they flip out. He tears his clothes. And that was a Jewish sign of we're done with this. And he said, this is the blasphemy. What else do we have to do? And they haul, you know, they haul, haul him away. And so when, you know, after Peter denies him, the rooster crows. And the, the last part of chapter 14, it says, and Peter broke down and wept. And so that was the 60-second, or maybe that wasn't 60 seconds, maybe that was 200 seconds, but that's chapter 14. Let's look at chapter, uh, chapter 15. Before we talk about 15, and you're going to think I've lost my mind when I ask you the next question because you're going to think that has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the Bible or Jesus or anything. But here's the question. Can anybody in this room, and by the way, I'm so glad that y'all are here. We're having church on Sunday night. Um, and so... Can anybody here tell me the fourth line of the Star-Spangled Banner? The answer is no, you can't. Can anybody here, because if you could, you'd have said it right away. Can anybody here tell me the first line of the Star-Spangled Banner? What's the first line? This is how our memory works. This is how our brains are wired up. This is the way we memorize things. You can't tell me the fourth line, but as soon as you said the first line, probably everybody in this room could just sing the whole thing. 
First line, bam, you could sing the whole thing. That's the way our brains are wired up. That's the way we memorize <coughs> things. And, and the, it, the memorization was so important in ancient Judaism. It is, it is the way that they educated their kids, and so particularly um, young boys. And so they separated the kids when they started the educational kind of process. You had six-year-olds to 12-year-olds, and then 13-year-olds to 15-year-olds, and then you actually had 15-year-olds to 30-year-olds. The six to 12s, they started that education at six. And the way they educated them is they, and, and the Bible didn't look like this. You had scrolls. But they began at six to learn the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they started learning it. They started memorizing it. By the time they were 12, year old, 12 years old, Jewish boys, if you, you could say in the, you know, tell me Genesis, and they, would, they could recite the entire Pentateuch, just regurgitate it out from memory. Well, how did they do it? What was the mechanism? How did they teach them to do it? And the way they did it <coughs> is they would, they would learn a passage. And then the first verse, the, and there weren't verses either, but the first part of it was the trigger. In the beginning, bam. You couldn't, you know, if you said, what's the third sentence of Genesis 1, they didn't have a clue. But if you said, what, how does Genesis 1 start? And they would say, in the beginning, and they could whip out the entire book of Genesis straight out of their memory. That's the way they, that's the way they learned it. That's, and truth is, that's the way all of our brains are wired up. Tuck that little tidbit away because it's going to come back to us in about 20 or 25 minutes. I want you, I want, I want you to hear Luke chapter 10. I know we're in Mark, but we're going to be a little all over the place today. But Luke chapter 24 verse 44 says this, and this is after, after the resurrection... And he's talking to some of his disciples. Uh, the Lord's talking to some of his disciples. And he says this. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. And that what he's saying, that's the whole Bible. That's the whole Old Testament. Because there wasn't a New Testament then yet. So that's the whole Bible. The law which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Torah, the Pentateuch. The Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. That's the entire Scripture. He says all of them. And here's the point. All of Scripture, y'all, points to Jesus. From in the beginning to the end. It all, all to the end of Malachi. It all, all points to Jesus. And so the Old Testament, and I hope y'all got a worship God. If you don't have, raise your hand if you don't have a worship God, because I really want you to have one. If you don't have one, Lynn will get you one. The Old Testament looks forward, and it is screaming he's coming. Every part of the Old Testament is looking ahead, and it's screaming that he's coming. Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord says to the snake, he says, I will put enmity between your, offspring, between your seed and her seed. Her seed is Christ. Her seed, Eve's seed is Christ. That's who, who the Lord is talking about when he says that. It's pointing towards Jesus. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is told to take his son Isaac, his only son, well not his only son, his most beloved son Isaac. He's told to take him and sacrifice him and they go to the mountain and he's, as he's going up there, Isaac says to him, Daddy, I know that we're going to, to sacrifice because you carry in the altar like this, this uh 
altar thing that they'd made burnt offerings on. He says, I know you're carrying this with you, but, but where's the sacrificial animal? Abraham says the Lord will provide. They go, that mountain to this day, y'all, is called the Lord will provide. So he gets up there and he's got Isaac strapped. This is his son, y'all, strapped to the, to, the, to the altar. As he gets the knife up ready to kill his son, it just so happens that he sees right there a sacrificial animal. Because the, and he tells Isaac, the Lord will provide. Well, the Lord provided. All of that is an image of Christ. It's all an image of Christ. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are doing what? They're pointing towards Christ, and it's saying He is coming. The Jews prayed constantly, fervently, anticipating a Messiah, that He would be God's Savior to the people, that He would be a prophet to represent God to the people, that He would be a high priest to represent the people to God, that He would be the King of the kingdom of God. Even in the New Testament, the, what's recorded in the New Testament, you have people who are, and remember the New Testament hadn't been written yet. These are, this is the, they're recording what was said. And so in John 4.25, the Samaritan woman at the well says, I know that the Messiah is coming, he that is called Christ. It all, all of it is pointing to Jesus. So the Old Testament's looking ahead, looking forward, screaming that he's coming. And then the New Testament is looking back, shouting, us, shouting at us that he came and that he's coming again. Old Testament, he's coming. New Testament, he came and he's coming again. The, the New Testament is looking back at the cross. It's looking back at the cross. Paul's writings, looking back at the cross. James, looking back at the cross. Peter, looking back at the cross. John, outside of the gospel. You know, uh, the Revelation, the uh, first, second, third John, they're, they're looking back at the cross. And I want us, part of what I want us to do this morning, I want us to, to look at how our hearts and how our lives and how our eternities can be, can be impacted because he came and he's coming again. That's what Paul wrote about and that's what, that's what all the New Testament writers wrote about. Now there's four books, New Testament, four books that are different. And those four books are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are looking at us and screaming at us that he's here because they're, they're biographies, sort of, of Jesus' life. They're saying to us that he's here. These are written by guys that knew him or were an associate of one that knew him. We talked, have talked a few times about the fact that Mark is really writing Peter's testimony. Mark was an associate of Peter's. Really, Mark was really Peter's secretary. And so Mark lived with, with, with Peter, and he was with him every day, you know, after the resurrection. He lived with him every day, and he was with him, and he worked with him. And so he's hearing Peter's stories all the time, and Mark ends up writing Peter's testimony. Matthew, Matthew Mark was not one of the disciples that we know of. Matthew and John, two of Jesus' guys, Luke was a very well-respected doctor and, and a very well-respected researcher. John says, we were there and we saw it and we heard it. And, and here's what John said at the beginning of 1 John. This is, I think, verse 1 of 1 John. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, 
This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then he goes on and he says, we saw it, y'all, and we proclaim it to you. That's what John says. Each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they take us on a journey. All four with little different slants, but they take us on a journey. Where are they taking us on a journey to? They're taking us on a journey to the cross. All of them, Old Testament is pointing towards it. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they take us on a journey to the cross. They take us on a journey to the cross. So the central, obviously, the central theme of the Gospels is the cross of Christ. It is. From the very beginning of each Gospel, the central theme is the cross of Christ. And so I want us to look, particularly this week, because this is the week. Friday, 2,000 years ago, they crucified the Lord. And so I want us to look at it and look at it as it's described by the, the guys that were there, by the guys that wrote it because they were there when it all happened. They watched it happen. And we're also going to look at the way that it was perceived by King David. And you all are going to think, King David? Well, yeah, King David, a thousand years earlier, almost 1,100 years earlier. But first, I want to look at it through the eyes of the, the guys that wrote the gospel. Because, and they were there, and they interviewed people that were there. Um, they knew what they were talking about. These are trustworthy historical accounts of the events of that week. And the one that really knew better than any of them was John, because we know absolutely that John and Jesus' mother Mary were there watching the crucifixion. They were there. They witnessed it all. And I want us to to write down some bullet points. And we're going to have the, the I'm not going to have all the verses up there, but I'm going to have all the references up there. And so I'm going to shoot through these. And I want you to kind of think about what that scene looked like 2,000 years ago on that Friday. Begins Mark 15:33. It's daytime, and it becomes nighttime at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It turns dark. So it's an ominous thing. That's not normal that at 3 o'clock it just gets dark, right? And when it gets dark at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, then in Mark 15, 35, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is what he said in Hebrew. He wasn't speaking Greek. It's recorded in the Greek in, in the New Testament. He's speaking Eli, Eli. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark 14, 64, they all condemned him as worthy of death. That's what the text says. And we're going to look at this in a minute in light of, of, of something that King David wrote. So I want you all to sort of pack these, uh, these verses away in your mind. So Mark 14, 64, they all condemned him as worthy of death. In Mark 15, 24, they, it says they divided up his clothes and they cast lots to see what each would get. In John 19, 23, same thing. He says they divided his garments and cast lots. In Matthew 27, 39, it says those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their head. It really is like wagging their heads. That's really what it means. And that was a Jewish idiom that when you wagged your head at somebody, you were showing complete contempt and disgust for them. That's what shaking or wagging your head meant. And so that was in, uh, in Mark 27, 39. 
And then, in, excuse me, Matthew 27, 39. And then, and then a few verses later in Matthew 27, 43, the guy said to him, he trusts in God. And they're talking about Christ. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. In John 19, 34, one of the soldiers pierces Jesus' side with a spear. And the text said that it brought a sudden flow of blood and water. In John 19, 31 through 33, he talks about that no bones were broken. You know, when they crucified him and there was a guy on each side of him, they broke both of their legs. You know, when you're crucified, you don't die from the piercings. You don't die from getting your ankles driven, you know, horrifically painful, excruciatingly painful, but that's not what kills you. Asphyxiation kills you. And it kills you because you're so stretched, you can't support your weight anymore, and you, you can't breathe. And when the guards got tired of it taking too long, they would always just break the person's legs because then the person couldn't hold themselves up anymore. Jesus didn't have a broken bone. He had dislocated, disjointed shoulders, hips, but he had no broken bones. John 19, 31 through 33 talks about that. In 1928, Jesus said, I thirst. In Mark 15, 36, somebody ran... They ran, filled a, a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. John 19.16 talks about him being crucified by piercing his hands and piercing his feet. And then in 19.30, Jesus cries out, it is finished. We're going to talk about that, that, those words as well, which is actually one word in the Greek. It's actually one word in Hebrew as well. But he says it is finished. And then in Mark 15.39 now listen to this one. He says, So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, the centurion, the Roman soldier, said, Truly this man was the Son of God. That's the picture that is painted by the Gospels of that day and a couple of days leading up to it. Months earlier, Jesus said to those who were trying to kill him, who were plotting to kill him. He said this in John 5:39. He says, he tells them, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. The entirety of the Old Testament points to Christ. So let's look at Psalm 22. There's a guy named Derek Kidner who is a, uh, a, the he's a theologian. He he's writes uh, theological sort of books. And here's what he says about Psalm 22. He says, No Christian can read this psalm without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. This was written between 1,000 and 1,100 years before Christ was born. Y'all, 1,000 years is a long time. And Psalm 22 is a cry of despair. David wrote it. It's a cry of despair and then praise. It's a cry of despair and then there's praise. And I want you to think about these verses that we're going to look at in Psalm 22 in light of everything that I just said. And I'm going to refer you back, really, verse by verse. This is what Psalm 22 said. Think about, and they're going to be up on the screen. And I want you to compare it, understanding, y'all, that this was a thousand years before Christ was born. The very first verse of Psalm 22 is Eli Eli Lamach Sabachthani. The first verse is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is David, and it's a cry of despair, and it's pointing to Christ. 
Verse 6 says, I am scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Verse 7 says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. It's exactly what they did in Matthew 27, 39. Verse 8, they say to David, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he, he delights in him. It's exactly what they said to Christ in Matthew 27, 43. Verse 14 and 15, it says, I am poured out, and this is again the Psalm 22, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, has melted within me. My mouth is dried up. I'm thirsty. Mark 15, 36, and John 19, 28. And then verse 16, Psalm 22, verse 16 it says, they pierced my hands and feet. That's a crucifixion. But the problem is this is written in about 1044 B.C. Crucifixion wasn't even a thing then. Crucifixion wasn't even a, for four or five hundred years later is when the Persians started using crucifixion. It wasn't used by Rome for 300 more years. So David is writing this about crucifixion six or seven hundred years before the Romans ever did it. So can you imagine David is sitting there and he's writing this. He didn't even know what he's writing. He's like, what did I just write? I have no idea what this even means. They pierced my hands and feet. It, think about it, y'all. Six or seven hundred years before it was a thing. Verse 18 says, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. It's the same thing that was said in Mark 15, 24. And then in verse 31, it says, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. In the Hebrew, it's asa. That is, it is finished. It's over. It's done. It's taken care of. It's asa. In the Greek, from John 19, 30, in the Greek, it's tetelestai. It's the same word. It's done. It's over. It is finished. And y'all, think about this. A gift written a thousand years before he was even born. And this vividly paints a picture of Christ on the cross. It vividly paints a picture of the crucifixion. And you know, the Jews missed it for three years. And they'd been praying for a Messiah for 3,000 years. And they missed it. He was there for three years, and they missed it. And when it got dark, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Lord is, is hanging on the cross with two guys, on, you know, a guy on each side. They crack their legs and break their legs. And he is hanging there, bleeding. And it gets dark, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out, Eli, Eli, Lamak Sabachthani. It's Mark 15, 34. How is it that Jewish men remember and memorize scripture it's the first phrase jesus is hanging on the cross who's there watching it the chief priests the scribes the pharisees a bunch of jewish men he's hanging on the cross and he says eli eli lama sabatani my god my god why have you forsaken me what do you think their brains did it went straight to psalm 22 the scribes had written it a thousand times how did the scribes how was the scripture transmitted? It's in a room like this, 
And the chief scribe is standing here, and he's saying to them, they're, they're writing on papyrus, they're writing to Scripture. And he says, in the beginning, God created. And they all write it down. And then he says the next thing, and they all write it down. And when they finish with that piece of paper, they counted every character on each piece of, on every line, excuse me. They counted every character in every word. They counted every word on every line, and they counted how many lines they had. And they compare them. And if somebody's off, it gets wadded up and thrown away. That's why you can trust the Scripture. So they had written Psalm 22 a thousand times. And so, they, so what did Jesus is saying to them when he says that from the cross is, I'm the one. I'm the one that David was writing about. And y'all missed it. For 3,000 years you missed it. I'm here for three years. I walked among you. I talked to you. We prayed. You saw miracles. You saw healings. He says, I'm the one that Psalm 22 is written about. Think about how, how should they have responded. Because you know they sat there and they heard that and their minds were flooded with the thoughts that this is the Messiah and it was kind of too late. They'd already done it. And you know there were some of them that thought, we have massively messed up. But there's nothing they could do at that point. And then Psalm 22, 23 really gives us the answer to how, should, how they should have responded. It says, all you descendants of Jacob or offspring of Israel, so the Jews is what David is writing, all you descendants of Jacob or offspring of Israel, praise him. It's a psalm of despair and then praise. Their reaction should have been to praise him. The centurion figured it out. Remember what the centurion did when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus and he saw how he died, what did he say? Surely this man is the son of God. This is a Roman pagan soldier. He didn't know the scriptures. He didn't know the scriptures from his rear end. He had the vaguest idea. He saw what happened. And he says, surely this man is the son of God. So think about some of the messages from Psalm 22. Number one, he is clearly the Messiah. And he and his cross are the only way to salvation. Not one of the ways. That's a lie from hell. Not one of the ways. The cross is the only way. He is the Messiah. The only Messiah. And for us, as God's children, we're going to go through times when we believe in a lie. When we believe that he has abandoned us. Number two. Number three, Jesus is the fourth man in the fire with us that Daniel in Daniel chapter 3 talks about. When we are living with a feeling of abandonment, he is in there with us. And God promises us over and over that he will not abandon us. Deuteronomy 31, Moses spoke to all of Israel and he says it twice. He says, be strong and of good courage. The Lord is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Joshua chapter 1 says, I will not, it's the God talking, I will not leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13 is looking back at words from the Pentateuch, I will never leave you nor forsake you. David states in Psalm 22 in verses 4 and 5 that God did not abandon those in the past. They thought he had in Egypt. 400 years they thought that he had abandoned them. And along comes Moses and liberates them out of bondage from slavery in Egypt. And then they're at the Red Sea. What would y'all do? You're run, you've been enslaved for 400 years. You get out. And you know how many of them are in the desert? A million. 
they get up to the Red Sea, and they're like, well, thanks for nothing. It, we got a sea in front of us, and you got Pharaoh and chariots behind chasing. Thanks for nothing, God. You brought us out here for us to die like this. And then all of a sudden, the sea splits. And it really split, and they really walked through. And then they're in the desert some more, and they're starving. And they're like, well, you got us out of Egypt. You got us across the Red Sea, and now you abandon us out here. We're going to starve to death. And what happens? Manna from heaven comes. Bread, it's pointing towards Christ. He is the bread of life. The Lord provides manna for, for them in the desert. And then Moses goes up on the mountain. And this one doesn't take that long. They think God abandons them. But Moses comes down with God's word. Psalm 22, verses 21 and 24, it says that God was, he tells David, God is listening to you and I'm answering you, he says in those two verses. And so he never, ever, ever will abandon us. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8 say this, In the days of his flesh, he's talking about Jesus, when he came as a man, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Who's he talking about? The Father. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I believe that our greatest test of faith for believers is when you feel and you may be convinced that God has abandoned you. What are you going to do then? How are you going to react? What are you going to do? Are you going to cry out to Him then? Are you going to cling to Him then? Or are you going to cling to the things of the world? Are you going to cling to Him or are you going to cling to a bottle? Are you going to cling to Him or are you going to cling to some woman who's not your wife? I mean, what are you going to cling to when that happens? How does he show us grace in those moments? How does he do that? I think about Bethany Vogt. Elliot and Bethany Vogt. Elliot's been a tireless worker in production for five years. Well, really for eight years. Been on the staff for five years. His wife Bethany, two and a half years ago, finds out. And only Bethany has like a, a crazy cancer. Bethany gets a plasma cytoma. It's a, a, a tumor in her brain right behind her eye. Like only Bethany gets a, a, a cancer that is like one in a bajillion. That that's what happens to her. And I talked to her this week and I said, Bethany, did you ever feel like, uh, like God had abandoned you? And she said, uh, she said, yeah. In a, it was, she said it was kind of fleeting. She said, but, but yeah, I did. And I said, and you know, God... He does things however he's going to do them. And he shows grace towards me and you. He's got him to do whatever he wants. He uses people. He does whatever it is that he wants to do to get accomplished whatever he wants to accomplish. And I said, well, what, like what, um, what made that feeling of abandonment stop? Because I said, Bethany, you, you had hundreds, thousands of people that you didn't even know praying for you. And she said, what made it stop was my husband's prayers. Yeah. Amen. And I think about when I, when I was diagnosed with cancer. I had a fleeting moment that God abandoned me. And then I thought, but you know what? If this is true, if it's not true, he probably did abandon me. But if it's true, he says he never will abandon me. And so it, was, it flashed in my head and it flashed out of my head when I looked at her. 
And so, so it, the, the text of the Scripture and God's Word says that He is not going to do that. And so here's my question. Are you maybe suffering today? Somebody in here is feeling like God has put you to the curb, feeling like God has forsaken you, feeling like God has abandoned you. But His Word says never, which doesn't mean every now and again. It means never. Never, the text says, will He ever abandon you. If He would abandon us, then the cross is meaningless. The, then, then every word that he says is meaningless if he would abandon us. Then Christ died for nothing. And Paul says that. He died for nothing. All of what Mark 14 and 15 says, it might as well not have happened if he would abandon us. Do you all get that? It is... All of these events happened real time in history. And if he would abandon us, there was no point to all of it. And so look, as, I, as we wrap this thing up, I want to give you just a few takeaways from this. Number one, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he is the Lord of all, whether we believe it or not. Do you know that I'm not so important that my disbelief would affect the truth? Nobody in this room is. The fact that you don't believe something does not make it that that something didn't happen. Right? Does that make sense the way I said that? It's true whether we believe it or not. It happened whether we believe it or not. He's the one in Psalm 22, y'all. He's the one in Isaiah 53. He's the one in Daniel chapter 3. Because the Old Testament is screaming at us that He's coming, y'all. He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. Even with all, and this is, this is sort of takeaway number two, even with all the evidence, the evidence in the text, the evidence when you walk out and you look at the world, your own personal experience even, will be that some people are not going to believe. They're not. And you know what that ought to make us do? It ought to make us cry. It ought to make us be on our knees praying for our friends that don't know Him. It ought to make us give these out. You know, I, don't be putting it on me. I don't, I'm going to do that because I don't want, I want a well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to know that I went, I, I, that I did everything I could do to bring everybody that I know that is lost to the foot of the cross. And so it is, in, so, so, unfortunately, everybody is not going to believe. And it really should make us cry. And whatever excuse it is that we use not to believe, or whatever excuse that we use not to obey God is not good enough. We have got to cling to the cross and quit living by excuses. Absolutely need to quit living by excuses. And the last point is this. David suffered. David suffered a lot, but God had a bigger picture. Bethany Vogt suffered and is suffering, but God's got a bigger picture. I suffered with cancer, but God's got a bigger picture. 120 people in this room right now. There's no doubt there's people that are suffering with illness, but you know what? God's got a bigger picture. And we can all rest in the fact that we have a Savior who has been there, who has walked that walk and suffered a billion times more than we ever will, experienced way more rejection than we ever will, and God will bring about praise and glory to His name by the way that we respond to our suffering. Because as a Christian... As a Christian, and it doesn't mean it's easy, but as a Christian, you know what we know? We know we win. Y'all know we win. 
When it's all in death, I win. That's the craziest thing to think about. In death, I win. It's hope. What's the difference between a, a believer and an unbeliever is hope. We have hope in Christ. If we're not in Christ, we, it's hopeless. And so y'all just have to know, and you should rest easy at night, in the pain, in the pain that we win at the end because we have hope. And so look, when your cross comes, not if, you know, it's coming. When your cross comes and you feel like the Lord has abandoned you, cling to Him and cry out to Him. And don't miss Him like they did. Don't miss Him. Don't miss Him. Everything points to Him. Don't miss Him and cling to something else. Cling to Him. And so here's, here's what I tell you. If, if you have never clung to Him, if you've never cleaved to Him, from the book, language from the book of Ruth, if you've never done that, today's the day to do it because we don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what tonight brings. We don't know, you know, I, we, we thought it, we, it made me think about it this morning when the tornado's coming. You know, we experienced that a month and a half ago and people woke up that day. You think that family thought that 10 of their family members were going to die? I mean, we don't know what's coming. And so my, my, my thrust to you is if you've never clung to him, cling to him today. Cling to him today. And it's not a complicated formula, man. It is repent, ask forgiveness, repent of my sin, believe in my mind and in my heart that all these events in Mark 15, that they happened, that he really died on that cross. And that he died on that cross because you know what? My sin had to be paid for. It's got to be. Your sin's got to be paid for. If God's going to be just and righteous, your sin's got to be paid for. And the craziest thing of all is that it happened 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, he paid for your sin in, in, in 2019. How nutso is that? But it really happened on that cross, and it took care of it. And all you have to do is believe it. All you got to do is believe it. Believe it today. Y'all pray with me. Lord, thank you so much that you left us with a legacy, that you left us with your words, that you protected your words for 2,000 years, that you guarded your word for 2,000 years, that you ordained this day and this moment right here because somebody in this room that we're talking with right now needed to hear about you and your cross. Before time began, you ordained this moment right here. And so, Lord, I thank you so much for that. And, Lord, I pray for all of our friends that don't know you. Lord, I pray for the people in this room right now that came in here and didn't know you. I trust that some of them do know you right now. And, Lord, there is nothing more beautiful than that. And so, Lord, I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.